Every time we gather for worship, we have a time where I preach or somebody else preaches. And the reason we do this is that from the very beginning, God has spoken to sinful man through other men. And he has been pleased to use sinful men. Everybody that preaches or ever has preached, with the exception of Jesus Christ, is a sinner. And God does this because it humbles us. It makes us, um, it makes us humble to have a sinner be the one that he uses to preach to us. So this morning I preach to you, this sinner, a specific one named Tim Bailey. And I want you to turn as we begin our time of studying God's word to the same chapter we had read to us earlier by Jake, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the place in Scripture more than any other place, which opens up to us the significance of the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection in him. There are times that we catch a glimpse of the real picture inside the hearts of even the cockiest men, the most self-assured men. For many years, I've used one particular man as the illustration of what it means to be self-assured. And that man recently has come into greater prominence in the media, but he's always defined for me what it means to be cocky or to be proud. And the man is Donald Trump. Donald Trump years ago was interviewed, and the interview was published in the Chicago Tribune, and he was talking all about everything he had done and how much money he had and about who he was. And then at the very end, the interviewer asked him a question about death. She asked him whether he was worried about death. And here's how Donald Trump answered. He said, no. I'm fatalistic, and I protect myself as well as anybody can. I prepare for things, but ultimately, we all end up going. No, I don't believe in reincarnation, heaven, or hell. But we go someplace, do you know? I cannot, for the life of me, figure out where. And I think, actually, Donald Trump probably speaks for most of those who are in church most Sunday mornings. I think despite repeating the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, despite reading chapters like 1 Corinthians 15, I think that most people who are Americans and Christians would, deep down inside, mimic what Donald Trump saying when he said, do you know I cannot for the life of me figure out where? Scripture speaks of this fear in Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, where it says, since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, and it's referring to Jesus here, he himself likewise also partook of the same. So Jesus, God's son, was sent here to earth and took on flesh, he became incarnate, so that he himself would understand and share in our flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook the same, that through death he 
the Son of God might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. There are many times in life where you're sitting talking to somebody and they lie to you. I had somebody lie to me this morning. We lie all the time. Every one of us lies. I used to tell people, I don't lie anymore because when I was in junior high school, I was a habitual liar. And then a man prayed for me and I stopped lying. And then I had somebody tell me, you're a liar. And I said, I'm not a liar. I don't lie. And then I began to watch myself. And I realized that what's happened is I've become much more sophisticated and moralistic in my lies. So now instead of saying my suit is white when it's black, now what I do is say, did you notice such and such? And I know that they're going to think so and so, but I say such and such and I'm willing to have them be confused about what I meant because it serves my purposes. I didn't actually lie. I just said, did you notice such and such? But I want them to think so and so. Everybody lies. And what it says here, as everywhere in Scripture, at the very end, it says that Jesus came to deliver those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. Well, this is, an, this is a faithful saying about the nature of man. And when I say man, I mean men and women together. Elizabeth Kubler-Loss was a student of death and how people respond to it. Elizabeth Kubler-Loss used to talk about the denial of death that is so much a part of Western culture today. It didn't used to be that you could deny death the way we do for a couple of reasons. First of all, children were dying constantly. You go back to colonial times and you look at, or you just go to a graveyard. And just look at all the babies that died. They didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have the medical care we have today. And so death was a part of life. Another thing, people were around animals. And people knew that they ate dead animals and they knew who killed them. You know, you'd, you'd, you know think of Jerry Carr. We had a rat kill him. You know, or think of the chickens pulling the feathers. Or think of the meat, you know. But then another thing, when you did die, you died in the home. And so everybody was there. I remember when my brother Joe died. He was in the hospital for two weeks in the ICU. And uh, back when I was a little boy, he was 19. And I had to play out on the front yard of the hospital. They had a good hill and I could sled there. But I couldn't go in the hospital and see my brother. And he died. And I never got to see him. Well, that's about what the hospital is like today. If you get in... That's good you got in, but if the doctor or nurse comes in, you make yourself scarce. And so death happens in the hospital. I was very, very happy to see that uh, Bill Cook was able to die at home. Um, I don't know if you noticed that, but that was such an encouragement to me. And so we deny death today. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who studied the way we die, said that everybody today drives down the street and they see a body on a stretcher with a sheet over the body and they say, thou and thou and thou, but not I. And that's true. We lie to ourselves all the time. We say we won't die and we say we're not afraid of dying. But the Bible says that Jesus came to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. 
And we all think, well, I'm not a slave of anyone. You are a slave of death all your life. That's the truth about you. That's the truth. And so what is death? Is it the end or is it the beginning? Is it to be feared or is it to be embraced? What about you? Is death something you try to put out of your mind when you pull over to the side of the road to allow the funeral procession to pass? Do you think you and you and you, but not me? short time ago, there was a young man in our church who was describing being with a friend of his. And he was, he was bragging to me about how he was on his four-wheeler and that he was in his friend's backyard and that they were going, he told me, 80 miles an hour over jumps. And I looked at him and I said, you will die. And I could tell it hadn't registered, you know. Does anything register with me when I'm young? Nothing. And so I said, listen to me, you will die. And it was not but a couple of months. And then his friend, who he rode with, died on a four-wheeler. And I've lived long enough to see that when the Bible says that the man that resists instruction dies, that it's not speaking hypothetically. That it's not a concept that you can take or leave. It's a reality. And the truth is, every one of us is going to die. We will die. And during our lives, for most people, fear of death is a slavery of their lives. And so I ask you, when you lost your father or your mother, did you say goodbye forever? Do you grieve for your wife as those with no hope? Or do you say, see you there? One of the most beautiful things I've ever had the privilege of being a part of in my life was when I first became a pastor, being asked to go out to the home of uh, Josie Dykstra. And I've, I've mentioned her before. She was Dutch, and so she was much. <laughs> and she stood, I want to say, about... Uh, I'll bet she was six feet. And she had either a cousin or a brother who stood about six, eight. And he was 90, about 90 at the time. And she was, I think, like 88. And she was dying and she was at home. She was in a big bed. And the family was gathered around at the foot of the bed. And she was a godly woman. When I first came to the church, she said to me one day, she said, I think she actually wrote this to me. She said, "Uh, Pastor Bailey, would you please preach on Amos? (laughs) Well, every new pastor would just love to jump right in to Amos. If you don't know, Amos is a pretty intense Old Testament prophet. Uh, For instance, he, he, he condemns the women for lying in their couches and demanding that their husbands bring them food and drink. You know, it has no application to life today, so why would I? (laughs) And so here's this older mother in Israel, this godly woman, and she tells me she wants me to preach from Amos. And why? I remember she said to me, because nobody fears God and no one speaks of sin anymore. Well, here she was dying. And we're in the room, and her brother, I'm going to assume he was a brother, I think 
Do you remember? Was he her brother? Yeah. Sam was there, and Sam was godly. Sam was this wonderful man of God. Oh, you know how you know whether somebody's a man of God? If they're, if they're a widower, and you go in their home, the way you know, it's not how clean the bathroom is. It's a joke. You go in their home, and what you'll find is a Bible there, a thick, large print Bible, and you'll see that all the edges of the pages are just filthy dirty. That's only one of the ways you knew Sam was godly. So there's Sam, and he always wore a zoot suit from the 40s. You know, he had these suits that came way down to his knees. So probably the suit would have been like a full-length skirt for me, right? And there he was beside her bed, and she was lying in bed, and Sam was not allowed to drive after dark because of his failing eyes. He still drove himself. And he came over to the bed, and he leaned over, and he kissed her. And he said, see you there, Josie. See you there. It was a wonderful, wonderful strengthening to me as a young pastor to see Such a beautiful thing. Josie dying at home, surrounded by the family. We were singing hymns before he did that. We sang after he left, read scripture. He says, see you there, and he goes home. How beautiful. And so this Easter morning, we think about resurrection And we think about death. And we read a scripture passage that is all about resurrection. Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection of those who have faith in Jesus. And what we see in this passage, this chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, is that as with most things, the Corinthian church got it wrong. We've been studying... 1 Corinthians for quite a while now, and it's a letter that just shows all the mistakes and all the sins of the church. And if you ever think that it's a scandal that the church has sin in it, it shows everyone is a hypocrite, you'll be interested to know that every single true church is filled with sin. The Corinthian church was a true church, and it was filled with sin. Uh, people have a very, very wrong notion of what it means to be a Christian. They think that to be a Christian is to give up sin. And that's not what a Christian is. A Christian is not a a man or a woman who's given up sin. A Christian is a man or a woman who is giving up sin. And it's tough work. And it's because of that tough work that people stay out of the church and accuse the church of being filled with hypocrites. Because they don't want to engage in the tough work of God disciplining us for our sin and making us holy. Well, anyhow, this Corinthian church was filled with every kind of sin you can imagine. Everything from coming to the Lord's table and getting drunk, to having a man in their midst who was sleeping with his father's wife, to here we see that there were people in the church that denied the resurrection of the body. And this is what the Apostle Paul is dealing with here. In verse 1, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. And the word gospel simply means good news. Here's the good news I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, 
Okay, so here's the good news that the Apostle Paul preached, that they received, and that they stood in, and that they are saved by. And then he says, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, to the degree that they stand in this truth that he is preaching, this good news, they will be saved. To the degree that they stop standing in this truth, they will be lost. They will perish. In other words, there's skin in the game. There's a risk. And if the church is not removing the risk from the knowledge of God, then we must recognize that he says, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, the Apostle Paul is telling them about the resurrection of the body and about the resurrection of Jesus Christ precisely because if they give up this truth, they will have believed in vain. There will not be any hope for them. And so this is not a minor thing we're looking at when we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and of those who die in him. If they hold fast to it, they will be saved. If they give it up, they will have believed in vain. And then he says, for I delivered you as of first importance. I have subscribed to a magazine called First Things. Some things are secondary. Some are third and fourth and fifth, and some don't really hardly matter at all. All right, But there are some things which are of first importance. And he says, I delivered to you, and the way he delivered was by preaching. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. In other words, God gave the gospel, the good news to him, and he delivered it to them. Now, what is the gospel? Well, verse 3, we see the gospel very, very briefly given that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So three things. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the message that the Apostle Paul preached and that is able to save to the uttermost eternally. Now, you go through the rest of the chapter, of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and you'll see that it really only deals with the third part of the good news they believe, that Jesus Christ was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And today, you too are saved as long as you have received a true and living faith in that same Jesus Christ preached by the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago that Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried, and that on the third day he was raised from the dead. If you have received that faith, have believed in it and not in vain, and continue in it until death, you are saved from death and hell and judgment. This truth is the only hope for sinful man to escape. And so having reminded the believers of Corinth of these facts, the Apostle Paul went on to remind them that although this last point seems hard to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, he goes on and he says there were many, many people who saw him after he was raised from the dead. 
and who gave testimony to the fact that Jesus had been raised from the dead, including over 500 of the brothers who had seen him all at the same time. Then the Apostle Paul goes on and testifies that Jesus had appeared to him also. Now, listen, you, you know that... Uh, you know that statement, it's, 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 <laughs> it's probably my favorite, I was telling somebody this last week, it's probably my favorite statement of, of any movie I've ever seen. Maybe, I don't know. But it's in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. You have Steve Martin talking to John Candy in the motel room, and he says, if you're going to tell a story, have a point. You remember that scene? It makes it so much more interesting for the audience. Have a point. Well, generally, emails and letters have a point. And beginning with verse 12, we see the point the Apostle Paul is making to the believers in Corinth about Jesus' resurrection. There in the church of Corinth, some didn't believe in life after death. And it says in verse 12, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So these brothers in Christ allowed that somehow, in some way, Jesus rose from the dead. Today we might hear them saying something like, Jesus is alive! Right? Jesus is alive! But they had no true, no real hope or faith in life after death themselves. And it does seem strange, doesn't it? How could people say they believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and at the same time say there is no resurrection of the dead? We don't know the exact nature of the error, what was motivating them. I think what was motivating them was that they did not believe they were sinners. It seems to me that every single failure I've ever run into as a pastor and myself and others is always motivated by a denial of my sin. And so if, if I think that it's not sin to speed then I don't think other people are sinning. If I think that abortion isn't a sin, then I make up a big case about it's a woman's right to choose. And I, if I think that fornication is fine, I, I, I talk, if I think that adultery is wrong, I call it an affair. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we can define sin out of existence and justify ourselves, right? No, not, not that we can, there's an infinite number of ways we do. We make a principle of our sin. Right? I mean, this is what we do. And so what we see here is that there were some in that church who said there was no resurrection of the dead. And I think the reason that they were doing that, regardless of what particular method they used to argue, and I think the reason they did it is that they did not, they were unwilling to face Their sin. And today there are many who claim to be Christians, who claim to be followers of the risen Lord Jesus, who nevertheless, if you look at them, you see they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. There's absolutely no way they believe in the resurrection of the dead. How do you know this? Well, you know this because they claim to be followers of the risen Lord Jesus who said to them, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But they have no cross. There's absolutely no cross. You look at their lives and their eyes are fat, it says in Psalm 73. 
Everybody goes after them. When they walk down the street, they say that Richard Corey, right? Everybody, he was such a, oh my. And if you think about people who follow people like Donald Trump, people who want to watch him on television, you think, what could possibly possess a man or a woman to watch Donald Trump on television? I mean, honestly. I mean, let's be honest here. What would possess a man to do that? Well, the only explanation for it is that the man that watches him is a worldling. It's someone who is so firmly tied to this world that they think pride and egotism and wealth are something worth envying. And so they live vicariously through Donald Trump. Well, if I'd been born in New York and I had a father that had a bunch of tenements, <laughs> you read anything about Donald Trump? Where he got his money? How he started? Huh? I have. You know, if I'd been born in New York and I had a dad that had a bunch of tenements and had a good kickstart, you know. By the way, do you know how to start your engines that haven't been being used for 10 years? David Carell was trying to stop his, start his rototiller two weeks ago, and he pulled and pulled and pulled and pulled and pulled, and it was probably a Briggs and Stratton, right? <laughs> and he couldn't get it started, so he took off the housing, the flywheel, and then he put a, a drill with a drill bit into it. <laughs> and, and he kept turning it with the drill, and it started. So if you want to go into business and you want to make that a feature on Briggs and Stratton. Hondas don't need it. <laughs> it's true. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Will you forgive me, please? <laughs> we have a union brother right here. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so you think about the people we envy and you think about how we live vicariously through them. And we look at Donald and we think, well, if I'd had the kickstart that Donald Trump had, then I maybe would have been as wealthy as he is, and maybe I could have paid a hairdresser to give me <laughs> whatever that is. <laughs> but listen, we do this with actresses and actors. The older I've gotten, the more revulsed I am at the thought of ever being an actor, an actress. You get to the end of your life and you're, you're going to die. And what do you say? What did you do? You acted. You acted. That's not to say that movies are worthless. They may be. But um, my point is this. When we go through life and we look at what's around us, and we claim to believe in the resurrection, but we emulate Donald Trump, or we watch movies and wish that we were actors and actresses, or whatever we do, what it shows is that we don't believe in the resurrection. That's what it shows. Because if we believe in the resurrection, we live in such a way that we know that this life is an anteroom, all right? A foyer, an entryway. And that we're through it very quickly, and then comes eternity. All right? But here in Corinth, some among them were saying that there was no resurrection of the dead. 
There was a group of church members there, as there are all over the world today, who said that they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They said Jesus rose, but man and woman, they don't rise. I remember when I was at a general assembly of the mainline PCUSA years ago, and there was a man there who was very evil. He had been a missionary to Korea, and he was a very evil man. Church leader, church officer, pastor, very evil man. And I was trying to figure out why he was motivated to, he, he, was, he was arguing with some people and uh, really scaring them by the things he was saying. So I took him off to his side to try to get him away from them, and I was talking to him. And all of a sudden I looked at him and I said, uh, John, that wasn't his name. I said, John. It really like dawned on me. I said, John. You don't believe in heaven, do you? And John said, no. He said, I am sick of that pie in the sky by and by. And then he used an expletive. And I thought, here you have a man who is a pastor in the name of Jesus Christ who says that he doesn't believe in heaven and that he's sick of that pie in the sky by and by. Well, this is precisely the kind of person that the Apostle Paul is writing here in 1 Corinthians 15. This is somebody who is so materialistic, so worldly, so caught up in wealth and pleasure, so caught up in their degrees, so caught up in the joys of marriage or their grandchildren, so caught up in travel, who knows what they're caught up in, that heaven has no allure to them. It is is not in any way enticing to them. They have no faith in heaven. They have no desire to go to heaven. In fact, they look at heaven as, as evil, and he went on to explain that heaven is what keeps us from doing the work we need to do here on earth. And what was the context for the whole discussion? The context for the whole discussion was that this man believed abortion is good, and that the more of them we have, the better off we are. And so you, 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 you push underneath him, and you keep asking him questions, and finally it comes out he doesn't believe in heaven. Well, come on. Is it really heaven he doesn't believe in? No. What he doesn't believe in is God. He doesn't believe in judgment. He doesn't believe in hell. That's what he doesn't believe in. He does not believe he will ever face God and give an account. And so, if that's the case, then his actions and his words make perfect sense logically, don't they? If there is no life after death, then let's what? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so, really, he was very reasonable, wasn't he? Always, across history, no doctrine has caused Christians to be scoffed at and scorned by all the wise men of this world more than this precise thing, that we believe in the resurrection of the body, of the wicked to eternal death in hell, of the righteous to eternal bliss in heaven in the presence of the Lord. That thing that, that, uh, that Eric Clapton sang of, to live in the presence of the Lord. The early church father, Tertullian, in his little piece called Prescription Against Heretics, says this. He says, the denial 
of the restoration of the body, he means resurrection, the denial of the restoration of the body is taken from the aggregate school of all the philosophers. In other words, it's always been the case that philosophers, or today we would say academics, all right, scientists, it's always been the case that they deny the resurrection, that they deny it, always. We see that when Paul went to the most sophisticated city that has ever existed, when he went to Athens, he ended his sermon to the Athenians out in public by saying this. He said, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, and by the way, let me go back to that and say, You know, we hear gold and silver and stone, and we're so sophisticated today, you know, we don't think gold, silver, and stone are idols. You know, we don't worship them. But then it says, an image formed by the art and thought of man, and I tell you, every decadent culture ends up worshiping the artists. They're the high priests and the art. And so right then, we begin to think, oh, well... (laughs) You know, art is pretty important in decadent cultures, in our culture, isn't it? And then it says, the art, and did you notice it says, and thought of man. Well, you take the art, and then you add the thought. You take the university, and you take the museums, and, and, the, and the movies, and do you see the survey of Macintosh versus PC users, right? All the PC users watch Hollywood movies, all the Mac users watch indie movies. It's true. You take the art and thought of man, and it is absolutely what you and I in the Western world live for, and it's what the Southern Hemisphere is working hard to catch up with us on. Okay, the art and thought of man. He says, being then the children of God... We ought not to think that the divine nature, that God is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. And who is the man? Wouldn't you want to know? Through a man whom he is appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And how did the wise and learned men of Athens, the philosophers and the scholars and the idolaters, how did they respond to the Apostle Paul's message of the resurrection of the body and the coming judgment? This is what it says. It says, now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, Some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. Some were curious and some sneered. And so now here with the Corinthians, we see the Apostle Paul addressing them. And there's an inseparable connection we see between the resurrection of us and Jesus Christ. He says in verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? In other words, they thought they could take Christ's resurrection, but deny their own. All right, Why would you, why would you want to do that? Well, because it's so spiritual. 
You know, Jesus is somebody I have a relationship with. You know, Jesus is my friend. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is uh, a construct of my own emotion and sentimentality. Jesus is who I love. But he has no body and he's not here. And nobody can ever say I don't love Jesus. And so Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus lives. You know what I'm saying? Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Jesus lives. You know? But, come on, Aunt Susie just got put in the grave. I was there. Jesus lives. You know, it's a cosmic truth. Nobody can deny it. But my Aunt Millie, you know, my dad... You know, my miscarriage. What are you going to say about that? I must be a practical man. I must be a scientific man. I don't want any academic sneering at me. But what the Apostle Paul says here is, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Now, what we want the Apostle Paul to do there is say, if Christ has not been raised, there is no resurrection of the dead. That's not what he says. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. Do you, do, you, do you understand that? How would it work that if you and I are not raised from the dead, if we have no hope for the future, Jesus isn't raised? Well, the whole reason that Jesus came, the whole reason he was born, the whole reason he lived, the whole reason he died, and the whole reason he was raised from the dead is because of your sin. Your sin, yours. You say, Pastor, speak for yourself. I say, my sin. It's because of sin that he came. And so, if there's no hope for us, if we're not going to be raised from the dead, if we are still in our trespasses and sins, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead because he's unsuccessful. He was not able to do what he came to do. He didn't come for us simply to think thoughts about his victory. He came to give us victory. And so if we have no victory over the grave and over our sin, then he, he didn't succeed. He was not vindicated. He was not righteous. In other words, Jesus and me, you cannot take either one or the equations dead. If I don't rise, he didn't rise. If he didn't rise, I won't rise. We are in Christ. And then the Apostle Paul says, Moreover, we are even found, verse 15, to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Why false witnesses against God? Because the message the Apostle Paul preached, the truth he testified to, was that God raised Jesus from the dead. He said the third day, he, Jesus, was raised from the dead. So verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And and it's very interesting. Uh, I've preached on this passage before, and so I I was looking at this, and it says, and he was buried and he was raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And I noticed in my sermon that I've always said 
before that Jesus rose. And I've always put the power in Jesus. And all of a sudden it hit me that Scripture doesn't put it that way. Scripture puts it as Jesus being passive. It says, been raised. In other words, God is the one that vindicated his son. God raised Jesus. Jesus was acted upon by his father. And then verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Why? You are still in your sins. You see why they denied the resurrection? It didn't concern them one bit that they were still in their sins. They weren't concerned. I am not bothered. It's just a perpetual... um, I'm constantly, constantly trying to deal with the fact that in our midst are so many who just will not see their sin. And you think, what, what would possess a man to come and sit in church week after week and have the word of God preached who are absolutely resistant to seeing their sin? Why would that happen? Well, it does happen. It happened in Corinth. It happens today. It happens in every church. In every place, there are people who are not concerned, not bothered by their sin, and therefore are not particularly concerned about the resurrection of the body. They have love for Jesus. They think he was a nice man. I think of a man who used to come here to church, who after he left, he wrote this, explaining that he had left the Christian faith. So he was more honest than most. And this is what he wrote. He said, the heart of it is that I'm unable to believe that anyone deserves unending punishment. But you'll tell me that that's because I don't want to admit how vile I am. What can I say? I think I'm imperfect. But no, I don't think I deserve to suffer eternal misery, nor anyone else. And I mean anyone, take your pick. I don't think it's logically or judiciously conceivable. And so what's going to happen? Here's what scripture says about you. Listen to it, Romans 3. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there's not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the the path of peace they have not known. And then the ultimate horrible statement. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So it says there is none, not even one. So so listen, not Gandhi, not Gandhi, not Mother Teresa, not Francis of Assisi, not Bernard of Clairvaux, not Abraham Lincoln, Not the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And not Billy Graham. 
and not Elizabeth Elliot Gren, and not Jim Elliot, not John Piper, not Abraham, not Bill Cook, not King David, not the Apostle Paul, not the beloved disciple John, not Jeremiah, not John the Baptist, not Moses, not Enoch, not Noah, not Deborah, and not the Blessed Virgin Mary. Not one. And, of course, not me. So here's the truth. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. If there's no resurrection of the dead for sinful man, then Jesus Christ himself has not been raised. And if Jesus Christ himself has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Here's the truth of God. And it's a more sobering truth than any oncologist has ever given to any person in his office. You are not righteous. You. You do not understand and you do not seek God. You have turned aside from God's commandments. You have become useless to anyone, God or man. You do not do good. Your throat is an open grave. You keep on deceiving, lying. The poison of asps is under your lips. Your mouth is full of cursing. Your mouth is full of bitterness. Your feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in your path. You have not known the path of peace. And finally, there is no fear of God before your eyes. And so this is your condition. If there is no resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead. We are all about to die and face God with this wickedness that is properly attributed to every last one of us. To me, to you, to my beautiful daughter, Michael, and Hannah, to my mother, to my grandmother, to Josie Dykstra and Sam. And so the question is, what do we do with this truth? It all comes down to whether we believe God's diagnosis or whether we reject it. Now listen, you don't have to worry about other people here condemning you because you're before a tribunal that's infinitely higher than anybody sitting in the pew next to you. And that is the tribunal of God. And God looks at you And God sees you through and through. There's no place you can hide from him. And so if you come under the judgment of God, here in this life, you have an opportunity to flee to the cross where his son is up on the cross with his blood pouring out to purchase your righteousness. Okay? And his righteousness becomes yours when you put your faith in him. That's, that's the gospel. Remember how simple it is. 
Christ died for our sin. And it's a scandalous simplicity, you know. If it was in a refereed journal, <laughs> I'm sure it would have 5,000 footnotes. But it's just simple. Jesus Christ was born of a woman under the law and lived perfectly obediently and then was crucified and became our righteousness, our sin offering. He suffered for you and for me. And so everybody who sees this diagnosis and says, that's me, everybody who has no difficulty understanding how their, their feet, their feet are swift to shed blood, not mine, yours. Everybody who sees that this is absolutely, completely accurate, every word of it is your diagnosis. What do they do? They flee to the cross. And they're not thinking of what anybody else is thinking about them. They're not thinking that their wife's going to be sitting there saying, I told you, so I've been trying to tell you that for 20 years. How many wives have kept their husbands from the cross? Once you see your sin, it doesn't matter who's looking at you. It doesn't matter who told you you needed to go, even somebody like Tim Bailey. Okay? Once you see your sin, there's no remedy except there. There's just no remedy. And once you flee to the cross then where is your life? Well, your life has crossed the divide and it's now in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And if you won't flee to the cross because you see your sin, then what's the resurrection of the body and who gives a rip about it? I mean, honestly, life is good. Do you know what Calvin says on this text? He says one of the reasons that we would be of all men most miserable if the resurrection didn't happen is because... Christians always have a harder life because God's disciplining us because he loves us while he fattens up the wicked for slaughter. And those are a direct quote. That's the words he uses. And so if your life is good and the resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't mean anything to you, the reason is that you don't walk around weighed down like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress with your sin. And you really don't accept this diagnosis of Scripture, of who you are. You may think this is what your husband's like or your dad, but you don't think this is who you are. Well, Easter's a precious day for us, and it's precious. Why? (laughs) It's precious because we are so aware of our sin. And so we come to a day in the year when we look around and we smell lilacs. I got up last night, early this morning, and I went down to the kitchen. It was almost overpowering, the lilacs. A little group of lilacs. And what are they doing? They're testifying that Christ is the first fruits. (laughs) Their smell, the robins, the red buds, the little babies in our midst today. All around us, we have testimony to Christ, the firstfruits of those who we raised from the dead. And so Christians who live with the discipline of their heavenly father, and boy, that discipline is hard. I was talking to my mother who's 92 and has Alzheimer's, and she went through a terrible time the last three weeks. Just terrible. 
I mean, I won't go into it, but trust me when I say terrible. She was, she was a pain to live with. And there were all kinds of things about her life that were awful. And so she was saying to me, why am I living? What's the purpose of this? And I said, hey, mud. We call her mud. That's our affectionate term for her. I said, hey, mud, here's the deal. God's making you ready for heaven. And to do that, he has to humble you. And mud, isn't this humiliating? And then I listed the things that were going on with her. It was kind of, you got all red in the face just saying them out loud. And then she said, yes. But my mother has faith. And then she realized God has a purpose in the suffering of old age. He's making us ready for heaven. And boy, heaven becomes precious to us, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So that's the good news. That the day will come. Remember what it says? It says Christians desire three things with respect to sin. Justification, that it not condemn. Sanctification, that it not reign over us. And glorification, that it will not be. And that's the happiness of Easter. Yes, yes, yes. Jesus was raised from the dead. And because he lives, what? I also will live. Because I've died with him, been buried with him. That, that be going on right now, good buddy. I'd be, be getting buried. And one day we'll cross the threshold and there will be exceeding joy forevermore. Listen, if you've never acknowledged the, the, the accuracy of the diagnosis of scripture, of your wickedness, I just plead with you. Unequivocal surrender, unconditional surrender. Come to God. He's, he knows, it says, while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And so God knows who you are. You're not hiding it from him. And don't think about your wife. Don't think about your children that have been harping on you for three years. Come to Jesus. Father, we thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to give us the gift of faith in Jesus Christ, that you have awakened us to our sin and have given us new life in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We thank you that Jesus Christ was not abandoned to the grave, but that because of his obedience, you vindicated him. And now you have seated him at your right hand. We thank you that your word says that at the name of this son, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Father, those knees that have not yet bowed in this life, we pray that they may bow today. We pray that today they may go home and confess their sins in your presence alone, so that they may be spared the awful judgment that is coming for all those who repudiate and reject and harden their hearts against your holy and precious Son. We pray in his blessed name. Amen.